What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Well, where are we this week? We've uh, pretty much finished up our series on types and shadows. We're going to be beginning to look towards some uh, Christmas stuff. I'll be in and out over the next couple of weeks. Going to have somebody filling in for me while in the church. I may or may not have time to put out a podcast. Um, I'll have a couple out before Christmas. But a lot of work going into the New Year uh, Bible reading program, which I'd certainly love to have you along for that. We're going to put out a daily podcast of Bible reading. It's going to be the reading for the day, a brief overview, and a few devotional thoughts, questions to meditate on. And that's going to be out every single day for the next year of our, or for the year 2024. Looking forward to that. I've been working hard on it. It's definitely time consuming, but uh, we're going to get there. We used the New Testament passage last week to expound on the life of Noah. And we're going to revisit that same passage again this week, Ephesians chapter two. I think last week we talked about verses eight through 10. This week, we're going to look at verses one through 10 and just read the whole lot. So if you'd like to follow along, if you've got a Bible device, phone, whatever, or you can just listen. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10 say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the age of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in coming ages, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Well, if you do happen to be following along in your Bible, leave it open to that passage. We're going to come back um, to this in a bit. And it'd be good if you could follow along. Here in Australia, you know, if you're in Australia, you'd already know this, but if you're somewhere else in the world, uh, we have religious instruction classes here in public schools. And I used to teach those classes at state schools and at, well, in several different schools in the local area. And I did that for about 10 years. And it's interesting when you do that, there's a wide variation in the culture um, and environment in different schools, classes, teachers, and students when it comes to teaching the Bible in a public school. And obviously there will be some friction with teaching religious classes of any kind in a public setting. Um, Christians taught the majority of those classes. That is, is obviously the, the um, majority uh, religion here in Australia as it is in Western culture in general. But they weren't the only ones teaching religion in the public schools. There was a couple other faith groups involved. I think Baha'i was one of them. Um, and there was one other one too, but I don't remember what it was. It's 
really irrelevant, I suppose, but there were some classes and teachers who were very receptive to that teaching, um, to my presence there, and others who were anything but. One of the things I always found interesting was how the beliefs of the people at the school didn't necessarily determine how they felt about what I was doing. I had an atheist principal, for instance, once who was very welcoming, um, and I experienced varying degrees of success in that ministry. Um, the atheist principle, I think, even though he was an atheist, he understood that the the Bible was at the foundation of Western culture and for young people, well, anyone, to understand their culture, they really need to have some knowledge of the Bible, whether they believe it or not. It's a helpful thing to know. And I know of one former student who went on to become a teacher themselves. And I had a few young people who accepted Christ through that ministry, and I'd certainly say that's a win. And I remember I had one class in particular that was extra spicy. Boy, they were tough. And it seemed there was something about this one particular room that I used to go in. I don't know what it was. It was a shape, the size. If it was overcrowded, it was too hot. But every year that I ended up in that particular room, it was especially difficult. There have been different teachers and kids in the same room, but it was something about the design of that room it was always a pain to teach there. And there was one year that that class was especially trying. And the main reason for that was one kid in particular. And if you're a teacher or you've ever done any teaching, you'll know what I'm talking about. It didn't seem to matter what I tried to do. He was just a troublemaker, which I suppose is poetic justice for me in some ways. I was, uh, wasn't that much different to that kid when I was in school. But I was constantly having to stop my class and deal with this one kid and I'd make him sit in a different place. I'd try to put him in a place where he couldn't cause trouble, but man, he would just find a way. And I was constantly trying to control this kid's behavior. He wasn't just a class clown. He was a genuine troublemaker. One day, things finally got to the point where I had to kick him out of the class. He didn't want to go, so I had to have someone come down from the main office and get him because we just couldn't have class with him in it. It was a giant fiasco. Didn't matter how hard I tried to involve him, work with him. He just wasn't having it. And it was hard on him and it was hard on me. And it wasn't that long after that, that my son, um, Samuel, started to attend the same school. He had been homeschooled up until the final term of grade seven. And then he uh, switched over into public school. And he ended up in that particular class. And so I got to teach Uh, religion classes with him in it, which was pretty fun. And guess who he ends up being friends with? The problem kid. They got along great. Sam, of course, would participate in classes I was teaching. He knew most of the answers to the questions. And this other kid, hanging out with Sam, watching Stan, he started to answer questions and participate in class. And it went very well. And Sam invited him over to the house. He stayed a few weekends with us. We got to know him and learned about his home life and such. And I don't remember all the details, but it seemed that it was similar to what you would expect when a kid acts like that in class. But he started to come to church. One Sunday, I was giving a gospel presentation at the end of a sermon, and he was sitting right down on the very front row, just off to the left of of where I stand. And I saw him bow his head and pray. And then he looked at me and his eyes were wide and he was shaking his head, yes. And he had accepted Christ. And he was transformed. He became a different person. From when I met him, he wasn't the same kid anymore. He was someone different. 
he'd been influenced and he had been transformed. And as I think about that, I think there were three main aspects of my inter- interaction with that young fellow or three ways that we interacted with that young fellow that involved me, my son, and Jesus. And they were manipulation, influence, and transformation. Our initial interaction between him and myself and probably most of his interaction in his life up to that point was manipulation, people trying to control his behavior because he was difficult. And that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to manipulate his behavior. And not that I think that is a viable way to change behavior. I don't think manipulation works for that at all. But that's all I had. I had a class of kids, a very brief time with them once a week, and I had to do what I could do to get things done. And God can think work things out, and he did. Sam became part of the class. He became friends. The interaction moved from manipulation to influence. And through that influence, he came to a place where he could hear about Jesus that led from influence to transformation. And that changed his life. Now, if we could start there, it'd be great. But that's not usually how things go. The progression and influence of transformation changed the culture in that classroom. It affected the entire classroom. It affected the way that I was able to teach. And that happened through influence and transformation. Things were better after that. And I see that as a microcosm of the possibility of Christian influence. I think it's good for us to understand that. You know, like I said, manipulation doesn't change behavior, but it's sometimes necessary. Uh, In society, sometimes the behavior of an individual needs to be manipulated for the benefit and safety of everyone else. It's like when someone is incarcerated because they refuse to live peaceably with the rest of society. Um, I don't think you can change by behavior by manipulating it. It's like trying to legislate morality. It just does not work. If it did, we wouldn't need a judicial system, a police force, or a prison system. Manipulation versus transformation is something that Christianity, to varying degrees, has struggled with. It's not just a Christian problem. It's a human nature problem. You can see that friction in Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus brings liberty, whereas the Pharisees tried to manipulate people and put them in a behavioral prison of sorts, put burdens on them that were unnecessary, tried to control, manipulate. And I've seen many Christian families and churches that have lived by that manipulation rather than transformation. There's a lot of weird, um, what would you say? Especially in more hyper- fundamentalist type churches, there there tends to be an undercurrent of that strange manipulation versus transformation. And the idea is that as long as we put up a front for others, it looks like what we think Christianity should look like. We're good as long as we can hide what's really happening. Here at the church where I pastor, Hinterland, we have had, um, there's been a lot of people come to our church because we, we're pretty, you know, traditional. We're, we're a soft landing for people who have been coming out of cults in the past. We've had a lot of people come to the church like that. Um, and it's interesting as I listen to their stories, they all tell very similar stories about how the cult they were part of tried to manipulate their behavior. But the reality was that 
nobody really changed their behavior. They just hid what they were doing. Um, and I've been through that scenario so many times with people that I know it's a problem. And, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in our church or anyone listening, and at least not that I know of. But there are people to go to church every Sunday. They look like model Christians, but they're on the computer until 5 a.m. Sunday morning browsing porn. Or, you know, but the, but they look good. They show up church, they look good. Or someone who comes to church on Sunday and they're busy, they're involved, they're active, but that's the only time during the week they haven't been blackout drunk. And I've seen these kinds of things happen many times in the past. And in their mind, when someone's like that, church becomes a place of burden where they go to pay penance and, you know, to try to grasp some sense of balance while hiding who they really are rather than a place of worship and fellowship. They kind of go, it's almost like church becomes a place. I go to church to pay for the bad stuff I do. And, you know, I kind of balance out life that way. And that's that's a, a rough way to live. And you know, I'm not an expert on these things. There's a lot of depth to that. But I know that I've been an alcoholic in the past. So I kind of know the double life thing. I've seen families that live a very strange double life. I see you know, kids see their parents trying to manipulate behavior. It looks good for other people, but at home, things are just different. And the kids know it's fake and they grow up and see being a Christian as something fake and they don't want anything to do with it. And in a sense, they're right. I mean, that's not what it is. And you shouldn't want anything to do with that. Who wants anything to do with a religion of manipulation? And that's often people's impression of Christianity because they've seen that in someone and and when they see it, it sticks with them, which is unfortunate because that's not reality. But those kinds of things begin to be sorted by bringing it out in the open and forming new habits. You know, when you bring something out in the light, it takes a lot of power away from it. When someone has an addiction or a particular sin they struggle with, when you bring that out, confess it, shine light on it, it takes a lot of the power out of it. But in an environment where everything's manipulated, sin is hidden, everything's hypocrisy, put up a front, a facade, and just as long as you hide what's bad, you're okay. And in that kind of an environment, people are afraid to seek help because they feel they're going to be ostracized. They feel they're going to be judged, which is true because they're, you know, they're coming out, they're not hiding anymore. And in that kind of environment, that's often what happens. And for Christians, our walk with the Lord begins with regeneration, being born again and transformation, which is the process of sanctification, spiritual growth, discipline, and influence comes after those things. And we look at the world as Christians and we see the news, we see that, you know, there is a lot of stuff going on in the world that's very counter to our convictions. And Christians are often very challenged by that. And they tend to react in one of two ways. One is they get angry, they lash out, they try to manipulate behavior of other people. And in the process, they hurt people, they chase people away who are different. Um, Anger is actually a masking emotion. There's always something else underneath anger. It's not a standalone emotion. When someone is angry, it's because Well, it's likely because they're either hurt or they're afraid. That's where anger comes from is hurt or fear. And when people act like that, lash out at whatever happens to be going on in the world, trying to manipulate the behavior of others, that looks nothing like Jesus. Or the other thing they do 
is they give up on convictions and they just kind of get washed downstream with the culture of the day. Um, it's like, well, I don't know, I guess the Bible, this, that, the other, but uh, it must not really mean that. You know, looking around at the world, I saw uh, just this past week, I was reading an article of the Anglican Synod in London recently voted to hold special services to pray and ask God to bless same-sex marriage. And, you know, you can pray for whatever you want, but God's already clarified his answer to that in scripture. And, you know, secular world, church world, two different things. People out in secular world practice same-sex marriage, gay relationships, whatever. You know, personally, I'm like, well, that's kind of your business. I'm not going to throw a big fit about it. But um, it's not something that is part of church and scripture is clear about that. But between things like homosexuality, transgenderism, that's definitely a rabbit hole. Other social issues, many Christians are are on their back foot with those things. And they feel that they need to fight for their life or save their faith or whatever. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, they just, you know, go to the mat and tap out and say, oh, well, I guess it's not that big a deal and give up on their convictions. But there's a difference between caring about someone, loving someone and affirming their lifestyle it reminds me of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight describes and the Pharisees want to stone the woman caught in adultery, but Jesus, he kneels down, he draws in the dirt, which is such a weird thing to do. But the Bible doesn't tell us what he writes in the dirt, but I, you know, I, I have my own theories about it. I'm thinking it was something along the lines of Jesus is writing these guys' names in the dirt and he's you know, writing the things that they've done in the dirt and I think the reason the Pharisees wanted to stone this woman is probably because they were all sleeping with her and they were afraid she was going to start telling people and it was going to ruin the fake righteousness facade they were putting up. But that's just me. The Bible didn't say anything about that. But Jesus tells these guys, the Pharisees and the scribes that brought this woman out to stone her, he tells them, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he draws some more in the dirt. And these guys just kind of, gradually dissipate. And Jesus asked this woman, you know, where are your accusers now? And they had all left. And Jesus saves this woman's life. He keeps her from, you know, being stoned. But he he also says to her, go and sin no more. So he saved her life. He cared about her, but he didn't affirm her sin either. He said, go and sin no more. And I know those topics, transgenderism, um, homosexual relationships and marriage and all that stuff are hot button issues and they set off alarms in people's minds on, on both sides of the issue. Um, but if your faith causes you to react in anger to those kinds of things, to lash out, to try to manipulate, or you know, you just say, oh, well, I guess that's okay, or you affirm it uh, or just let it go, either one of those is a very weak kind of faith, very weak faith. When you look at the life of Jesus, He loved people, he helped people, but he didn't affirm sin. Neither did he manipulate people. What he did was he influenced people. And it takes far more spiritual maturity, fortitude, discipline, and and work to influence than it does to try to manipulate, lash out, or give up. That's just reality. The gospel transforms us, and through it, we are made new. We're born again. That's regeneration, and that's where transformation begins. And I know in our church, we've been working for a long time to build a church culture 
that holds to our convictions and works to influence our community without lashing out or without giving up on our convictions and being washed downstream with culture. I remember when I first came here, man, it was, uh, there's some people in the community I'd, I'd spoke to and they were like, you guys are so weird. And I didn't know where it was coming from. But anyway, I, th- I think we've mostly shaken a lot of that off. But we've been working a long time to be a church that holds to our convictions, but also works with our community and influences people in our community. And to influence culture in a way that's going to glorify Jesus, we first have to be regenerated and transformed ourselves. You know, we can't, we can't do it without that. We have to pursue that growth and we have to pursue that transformation. It's not really something that just happens all by itself. I mean, you know, one of the things I do is help people along that path, but they have to want to do it and they have to put some work into it. We must understand the Bible if we're going to grow. You know, that's why we're reading it in the dictionary. It's not like you have to be a, a scholar. It's not like you're, you know, have to have a seminary degree. You just need to read it and have a grasp of it and not just head knowledge. Some people, it seems like they read the Bible just to win an argument, but God's word should transform who we are. It should transform our hearts. And in doing so, it will create a culture in us and in our church of humility, inclusion, peace, service, life, hope, honesty, and confession. That's what Jesus wants for us. If we have that kind of culture, we'll influence the greater community around us, wherever you happen to be. And through that influence, we will see regeneration, transformation as others come to Christ and grow in him, which will have a growing impact on the culture around us, just like that classroom that I was teaching in, the culture of the classroom changed. And most of us think, we hear that as Christians, we think, yeah, wow, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. But influence is not easy. It's difficult. It takes some work. It takes time. It takes investment, lashing out, being reactionary, and giving my call biblical convictions. That's, that's easy. That's lazy. But that doesn't equate to influence. We are transformed through prayer, discipline, applying the scripture, allowing God to change who we are as a community in your church community, in my church community. That happens as God works in us through his word. So it's important that we read his word. Major Bible doctrines, there's, you know, there's a lot of major Bible doctrines that Christians generally agree on. Um, there's some secondary tertiary things that people are like, eh, you're, you know, a little more difficult to discern as clearly. And, you know, it's okay to have some different opinions on those things. Major Bible doctrines like regeneration, justification, sanctification, those doctrines change who we are. You know, Bible doctrines not only have the ability to change us, to create a culture among Christians, but that's the point of the doctrine. They're not just things we discuss in seminary or a Bible study, but we have defined these doctrines over, well, thousands of years so that we better understand the scripture and so that it 
transforms us so that God uses that to work in us and it changes who we are. God intends that we learn these biblical principles. They transform our heart, they transform our church, and they shape our church culture. And when a gospel-centered culture is created, it saturates everything we do as a church. And as that happens, we will build influence in our community. You know, there was a time, well, some time ago now, I suppose, when churches enjoyed being an influence in their community, a major influence in many cases. And personally, I think that's been lost for quite some time. And did we lose influence because too many Christians put up a false front about who they really are? Is it because churches have become, well, in some cases, not all cases, there's always exceptions, but places of self-help rather than serving the Lord and others? Is it because of prosperity preaching that's caused people to become self-absorbed? They see God as a means of getting what they want rather than our Lord whom we serve. Is it because of hard-shelled people being hyper-fundamentalist for all the wrong reasons, lashing out, attempting to manipulate other people, putting up a false front? You know, I, I really don't care how we lost the influence beyond knowing what to avoid going forward. And culture is always changing and it won't stop. It's changing as we speak, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Church cultures change, family cultures change. And as followers of Jesus, we care about influencing that change because we're following the most influential person in the history of the world, the most famous influential person that's ever walked the earth. Jesus has transformed the culture of the world and he continues to do so. A lot of people don't realize that I say it fairly often, but Western culture is built on biblical principles. And that comes through the influence of Jesus. And he continues to do that. And Christians, churches are the vehicle Jesus uses to take that to the world. That's the great commission. And I know it's a struggle because as we grow and reach people and churches work and do, things change. But if something is not changing, it's dead. And if we're too attached to the way things are, it's hard to deal with that change. It really is. I'm getting kind of old now and I kind of have to discipline myself to recognize that, you know, things change. And, but what if God's plans for us isn't what we might want it to be? What if it involves change that we don't like? But my pro hope and prayer has been for a long time, will continue to be that Jesus would use me and the church that I pastor to be an influence for him in the community around us, in the culture around us, and that we would see that culture transformed by him. And any transformation starts first with God working in and through you and me. And every single follower of Jesus, everybody who knows Jesus as Savior has a testimony that involves transformation. And they're all different. Some are far more dramatic than others, but everyone who's a Christian has one. And like I say, some may seem more dramatic, but the fact is, is they're all pretty dramatic when you think about what it really means to be changed from a lost and sinful person who's dead in trespasses and sins to being made alive and a child of God. And that begins with regeneration. When you look in the Bible, you'll, you'll only find the word regeneration a couple of times, but you'll find the concept all through scripture. Regeneration is a spiritual rebirth that, produces a new beginning. 
when we talk about that particular doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration, we're talking about being born again. We're talking about being a new creation in Christ. It goes without saying that regeneration is a cornerstone of church culture. Without regeneration, there is no gospel. There is no church. And one of the best places we can look to see this explained and then understand the kind of culture that creates in us and in our faith community is in the book of Ephesians that we read when we started. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And, you know, if you want to kind of go back there and, and look at these scriptures that talk about, I'm not going to read them all again, but I'll talk about them a little bit as we go through this. But this passage shows us that being born again produces a new beginning. It changes who we are. and we're, we're a new creation when we're born again. When we understand the doctrine of regeneration, it creates in us a fundal, fundamental element of gospel culture, something that we all need individually and should be a foundational part of our church. So in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, Paul gives us a before and after picture of the transformation that happens through regeneration of what it looks like, you know, regeneration. And in the before picture, things look pretty, pretty bleak, pretty sad. The first three verses describe what we are before we are born again. And Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. When you're physically dead, you're separated from your body and your physical life. When you are spiritually dead, you're separated from God and his life. Before we're born again, we're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Trespassing means, well, yeah, being somewhere you shouldn't be. I think we all know that. When we trespass against God, we take our reason, our will, our emotions, somewhere God says we shouldn't be. God set boundaries for us. And when we move outside of those boundaries, we sin. When we do that, we go someplace that God never intended for us to be. And in that place, we are spiritually dead. And when you're spiritually dead, your life is ordered and controlled by the world around you. It just, and the thing about that is you can do nothing about that. Before you know Christ, your life is ordered by the world. You live in a prison of sin. The culture of the world decides who you are, what you do. It's where you find your identity. You're manipulated by sin in a cycle that you can't break. It's like walking in a circle somewhere you shouldn't be and you can't stop doing that. It just keeps going on and on and on. Like the Bible says, you formerly walked according to the age of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. It's like being in a prison. When we are spiritually dead, the only option is the culture of the world around us. That's all there is. When we're spiritually dead, we can't influence the culture because we're part of it and we don't have any other option. All we can do is perpetuate it. When we are spiritually dead, we're dominated, controlled, shaped, manipulated by the culture of the world. And that's all there is. That's the only choice we have. Now, there are some religious people who are dominated by the culture of the world. They live a reactionary life. They lash out. They give up. They're dominated by what goes on around them. Are they spiritually dead? That's not for me to say. But I would say their growth is at the very least stunted and transformation has all but ceased. And the Bible tells us that the course of this world 
is set in order by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And while subject to that system, we are the object of God's wrath. This is very important to remember. This is kind of a major point of what we're talking about today. And this goes along with verse three. It says, if, if you're a saved believer, Jesus is your savior now, but don't forget where you come from. That's kind of the point. And Paul says, we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we were by our very nature, an object of God's wrath. Just like everyone else, and when we are spiritually dead, we're slaves to sin, just like everyone else. And the only difference is found in Jesus, and he gets the glory for that. Then we see in verse four, these words, it says, but God. It doesn't say, but you turned your life around or but you got yourself on the straight and narrow. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive together with Christ. He saved us by his grace. And in all the endless ages of eternity to come, those who are in heaven will be a shining example of God's grace. And I hope that's you. It is because of the grace of God that this is possible. And as we talked about with Abraham, Moses, Noah over the past few weeks, they were made righteous because they believed God. Roman talks about the free gift offered to us in Romans chapter five. And when it comes to that free gift, a free gift, all you can do with the free gift is accept it. You know, if you trade for it, it's not free. If you work for it, it's not free. All you can do with a free gift is accept it. You decide to accept it. You believe God, just like Abraham, it was counted to righteousness. For him, the same is true for us. It's when you believe God, trust Jesus, that you are set free from the prison of perpetuating the sin of the world. That's what happens when you believe God. When you believe the gospel, believe Christ died for you. We are regenerated as a new creation in Christ when that happens. Created to do good things that God has prepared for us to do. We're no longer trapped walking in a circle in a place we don't belong and we're walking in the good works God has planned for us. Before you know Jesus as your savior, you don't have any other options but to be shaped by the culture of the world. You're trapped. But when you know Jesus is your savior, you are set free. And if you have experienced that, you know that there is another culture. You know that there's another way of life. You know there is something better. You know that there is gospel culture. And knowing that, what should that create in us? And we think about where we are without God, trapped in sin, destined to perpetuate a sinful culture, helpless, hopeless, but God rescued us because of his love and grace. What kind of, what should that create in us? It should create humility. It should create a culture of humility in and among us. What God has done for us should humble us. It should create a lack of pride. It creates a culture of humility. Humility doesn't manipulate. It doesn't lash out. And don't we don't want to confuse humility with weakness either. It's not the same thing. So it's not washed downstream of culture either. Humility says, I'm here to walk with you. I'm here to help you. I care about you. There is much more than what your culture offers you. But we're not washed downstream with whatever happens to be pop culture of the day either. 
there's more to be had than walking in a circle in a place you don't want to be, where you don't belong, where you're an object of God's wrath, but you can't leave on your own. But any transformation, any influence in our culture around us, in our community, starts first with personal transformation. And the most important thing to realize is that the source of that transformation is the Lord. Whether you're part of the before or after picture of Ephesians, if you honestly recognize who you are, where you are, why you're there, it should humble you. Whether it be I'm dead in trespasses and sins, an object of God's wrath, perpetuating a sinful culture, or I am made alive in Christ, and knowing and understand either one of those should create humility. We must be humbled to be even begin to realize that we're part of a culture in sin and rebellion and on a path to destruction. Pride tell us, you know, pride tells us we aren't really that bad. It tells us, oh, I don't really need to be rescued from sin. Pride tells us that we know better than God does. I see that all the time. Um, I think it's it's always interesting how atheists kind of hop on some kind of intellectual high ground, but that's the, the fact is, is that's not true. I mean, atheists are just as subject to groupthink and echo chamber bias, all that stuff as anybody else is. So there's really, there's no, the argument of some kind of intellectual superiority is just completely untrue. Humility admits that we are who God says we are. And the only thing I can do about it is accept the free gift that he offers me through Jesus Christ. And then I can walk in the good works. God has created me to walk in. But whichever side of the picture you're on, humility realizes that I need Jesus as my savior or I have Jesus as my savior because he's the one who makes me spiritually alive. He's the only one who can break the cycle and free me from sin's consequences. Pride rejects that. It remains chained by sin, walking in a circle in a place that God doesn't intend for you to be. And as we think about that, we're where are you? I mean, you may, I've seen people have gone to church for decades and didn't know Jesus. And then all of a sudden it comes clear for them. You know, maybe you've never heard this presented in that way before. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't guess that I do know Jesus. I've just been going to church out of habit, putting up a facade, pretending I was a Christian, but I've never accepted Christ as my savior. Well, today's the day to do that. Turn to him. Realize you need a savior. Realize that you're just perpetuating a worldly culture without him. Put your faith and trust in him. Realize he shed his blood on the cross for your sin and that when you trust him, God will impute his righteousness to you. Do you know Jesus? If you do know Jesus and you are a safe believer, remember why. And remember that you and I, well, without Jesus, we're no different than anybody else and that should create in us a culture of humility. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 